Hello, Ken's pets and long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hall. Our guest today is a wonderful writer and historian whose work appears at her website, filmintuition.com. She's also the host of the delightful podcast, Watch with Jen, where she and her esteemed guests tackle themed shows, spotlighting actors, directors, genres, and more. And she is currently co-hosting with future guest Blake Howard, the podcast miniseries Midnight Run-Through, which is particularly relevant to our conversation today. Folks, here she is, your pal and mine, Jen Johans. Hi, Jen. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Oh, well, thank you for doing it. And congrats on the ongoing success of Watch With Jen, which really is one of our very favorite film podcasts. Um, And honestly, one of the things that I like so much about your show is uh, how mellow it is. Like you have a very calming presence, even when you have (laughs) a a guest like, say, our friend Sean Burns. So how did you land... (laughs) on the very specific tone and vibe of your show. You know, I was going to start a podcast and then the pandemic happened. And Mm -hmm. so it was kind of the bonus was just having great conversations with my friends or seeing people face to face like you. You've been a past guest. I'd love to have Mm -hmm. you back. And so just having a friendly conversation with people I respect and even if I don't love the movies, I'm always happy to learn, and it's it's a joy, yes. Cool. Well, you know, I, I always like to ask guests who are, you know, clearly uh, uh, enthralled to film history and well-versed in, in classic cinema, how they acquired that particular obsession. So what was your particular, you know, your cinephile origin story, if you will? It actually has to do with 1988. Uh, That is one of the distinct, yes, years for me, for sure. The first and only time I ever got in trouble in school was in second grade, which would have been 88 or 89. I was talking about movies during quiet time and got busted (laughs) by the teacher, had to go write my name on the board, which is so humiliating, you know, Jenny in big letters. And I knew like, okay, should probably stick to writing about movies from then on. (laughs) And uh, also, you know, not during quiet time. But I even remember it was about Pinocchio. I had some issues with Pinocchio, and I think maybe that (laughs) pissed off the teacher slightly. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, so that was right around 1988. And then also that year, some pivotal movies came out in my life. So... uh, I love this. Yeah, that's kind of my origin story. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, I've actually written down, so I remember it, talking about movies during quiet time, which I feel like is frankly uh, (laughs) all of our fates. That's what we've all, um, we've all been in trouble for it before, and we will all continue to be in trouble with it before. If I may ask, because this sounds like a pretty, um, you know, if perhaps your earliest piece of film criticism, what were your issues with Pinocchio, Jen? (laughs) I don't remember what they were specifically at the time. Okay. I think I didn't like how mean-spirited it was. I had sure. some issues with that. Um, just on a fairness, you know, your critiques yeah. that you have at that sure. time. Also, you know, around the same period, I think I had, well, we're going to talk about my first 
actor crush, but we had, uh, my, my first crush was a kid named Andrew whose parents owned a video store. I don't oh, even wow. know in retrospect if I really dug Andrew so much or as the idea of access. Yeah. This kid gets to bring home like whatever yeah. movies. Yeah. You know, that so yep. First, second grade, all of our fates. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, I spent a fair amount of college uh, dating a girl whose uncle was the local movie theater magnate. And look, I liked her very much. I'm not saying that that was the reason we dated. I'm just saying <laughs> nice perk. It helped. Yes. 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 It was a nice, it was a very nice perk. Um, okay. So, uh, so you say you're around second grade or so in the year that we're talking about today, which is 1988. Um, you know, what was your movie going life like at that time? Were you, you know, first of all, was this, were you sort of a multiplex kid? Were you going to the movie theater at the mall? How often were you going? Like, what was, what was your life like as a moviegoer in 88? I was going to the movies quite a bit. I always loved uh, watching movies as a girl. Like one of my first vivid memories of seeing an actor in a theater was Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck, which I think mm. was the year before yep. uh, with three generations of Italian Americans, my mom, my grandma, me. And oh, wow. I just remember when he hit the screen, it was like magic. You could feel it in the theater. And <laughs> so I loved going to the theater. It was a blast. My parents were pretty liberal. I think my mom worked at the public library and would bring home the videos quite a bit. I don't know that she was necessarily in love with some of the ones my dad decided to show us at the time. So in 88, <laughs> I do remember like, him and my uncle telling my brother who's three years older than me and was my childhood movie going buddy to like stay in the kitchen and color pictures while they watched platoon and we oh, sneaked wow. in <laughs> behind the couch and watched anyway so i was like the only kid who knew the names forrest whitaker and willem dafoe <laughs> by the time i was like you know third grade fourth grade and die hard was a terrifying experience it came out in 88 Yep. But I probably saw it in 89 when it was a new release. He was showing it to my brother again. I was in the room and I had such a reaction to that movie that men with facial hair. Now, this was also the Saddam Hussein era, right? <laughs> so men with facial hair were so like it scarred me for life. My dad had this like Tom Selleck, Burt Reynolds thing going on. <laughs> He actually had to shave his mustache because I had so many nightmares about Alan Rickman. And uh, <laughs> so I say this is the tax for showing yeah. Die Hard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That is great. All right. Well, I am very interested to hear some of some of your favorites then from this extremely formative year. Uh, but before we do that, Mike's going to walk us through some of what was happening in the world outside yeah. the multiplex. Here's Mike with headlines. April 4, 1988 was the greatest interview in television history. James Brown went on CNN with some amazing giant yellow like eye protector uh, goggle sunglasses and showed you simps how it's done. It's pretty clear he couldn't feel his face. Have you seen this interview? I cannot recommend it highly enough. I have seen it and we will put it in the show notes for anyone who has not. I would literally watch a biopic that just that was the climactic scene. <laughs> at like minute 82 i would sure. watch that movie and then sure. you could just stop after that it didn't sure. 
it went downhill from there. Time Magazine did a thing. Check this out. They did a planet of the year. Guess which planet they picked? Earth, obviously. So they called oh. it Earth the Endangered, right? It'd been a good bit if they'd have done Uranus, but uh, but Earth it is. Okay. <laughs> so they, they didn't because they don't have a sense of humor. They're very serious people. They picked Earth. They called it the Endangered. And then they printed that in a bunch of magazines and shipped them all over the world. So obviously we don't have a climate problem anymore. Thanks. Time Magazine. Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time was released in 1988, and none of us understand physics still. He tried. He did. The first World AIDS Day was held in 1988 and was an important show of force by people who were grappling with the disease and their supporters. That was a good step. Also in 1988, mm -hmm. Harvard yep. Medical School partnered with a bunch of film and TV studios, which I assume means paid them, to get the sure. concept of a designated driver into pop culture. Mm. I think that worked pretty well, right? Yeah, like, I don't yeah. really remember it happening. It just sort of became an assumed thing, no? Yep. Yeah. It's also at its foundation just a good idea. So maybe that's <laughs> yes. why it caught on. An unknown actor named Quentin Tarantino appeared on the Golden Girls as an Elvis impersonator and changed nothing. <laughs> we'll, we'll put that clip in there as well. He did some other stuff later, so we remember that sure. fondly. Otherwise, sure. we would not yep. remember it. 1988 yep. was hopefully the peak of the denim jacket. I have no data to back this up, but I'm pretty sure it's true. I hope it's true. I hope it was also the peak of the popped collar, which was often worn with a denim jacket or Ooh. without one. Yeah. <laughs> You're not James Dean. Stop trying. Okay, televangelist scumbag Jimmy Swaggart got busted, comforting himself in the bosoms of several women who were not his wife. That could not have happened to a nicer guy. Bye. That was a euphemism. That was the yeah. nicest way I could think of to say yeah. what he did. Yeah. The Consumer Product Safety Commission banned the sale of lawn darts after they killed three kids. Commission doesn't sound like communism for nothing. You know what I'm saying? Uh, speaking of pinkos, Governor Michael Dukakis won the Democratic primary to run for the chair Ronald Reagan had been farting in for far too long. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, he lost pretty bad to George H.W. Bush. So that's yeah. a shitty story from 1988. Yep. The Cosby Show. Oh, man. This is. I'm sorry. Wow. This is wow. The hits just keep coming, do they? <laughs> the Cosby Show was the most popular television show in the world, followed by uh -huh. Cosby Show spinoff, A Different World. Uh -huh. You ever heard that Jay Z line, I'm still spending money from 88? That's actually uh -huh. true for Bill Cosby. <laughs> and like maybe Bill Gates, but nobody else. Yeah. Yeah. Toni Morrison won the Pulitzer Prize for her novel, Beloved. Nothing Very shitty good. to say about that. Well-deserved. Yeah. Yep. Here's some here's some stats for you. You ready? A gallon yep. of milk averaged $2.30, mm -hmm. which actually doesn't seem totally mm. insane. A loaf yep. of uh, white bread was $0.60, cents and a dozen eggs were less than a dollar. Mm. Wow. I don't know. Is groceries, is that, is our grocery stats really the kind of grocery thing that your good. audience no, needs I, to hear? Yeah, I like, I like grocery stats. I'm in. And I'm working toward our audience now. Ready? A gallon of gas averaged 90 cents and movies were four bucks. It's a good deal. 1988 has the perfect wrap-up story. Are you ready for this? It's a yep. sports story that happened on December 31st. Okay. It's the perfect wrap-up for our show. The Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles played the Chicago Bears in what became known as the Fog Bowl. <laughs> right, Cold air from Lake Michigan blew over the warm air in Soldier Field and created fog as thick as clouds, and they just did a lot of running plays because nobody could see the fucking ball when they filled <laughs> up in the air. The Bears won 20-12, to 12, but as Fred Mitchell said in the Chicago Tribune the next day, it will be remembered as the best game you never saw. Beautiful. 1988, baby. Thank you, Mike.
That's uh oh, that's sports and that's headlines. 1988 baby is not actually our sign off. For this season, <laughs> that's sports and that's headlines. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. All right, Jen Johans, you ready to do a top five? Yes. All right. So we talked before the show. We decided on a random order. These will not be ranked. These will not be chronological, and they will not be alphabetical because we wanted to start. I mean, who are we kidding here? These are all promo appearances. Uh, we'd like to begin by promoting the podcast miniseries that Jen is currently involved in. So what then, Jen, is the first movie on your top five for 1988? It is Midnight Run. Who are these men? I love to travel by train. No! Where are they going? You'll find out when we get there. Why is everyone trying to kill them? Because your personality? And who's Mosley? Alonzo Mosley, FBI. Alonzo Mosley, FBI. Alonzo Mosley, FBI. Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin. You think we lost him? Oh, I'm sure we're completely safe. Midnight Run, rated R. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Which I am doing a pod miniseries with our good friend Blake Howard of One Heat Minute Productions. It is uh, going to be roughly a dozen episodes. We're talking to duos mostly, so we're kind of partnering with, like we had on Ben Mankiewicz and Alan Seppenwall, Megan Abbott and William Boyle. We've had a couple of solo appearances with like George Gallo and just talking about why people love Midnight Run as much as Blake and I do. It's kind of a foundational uh, movie for us and our friendship and when I was first on Heat he assigned me a Robert De Niro minute actually like when he's about to kill Wayne Grow, like that moment Ooh, not knowing moment. I was even a De Niro fan which is kind of like you know where were you hiding but um, <laughs> and it all began with Midnight Run for me I remember uh, my parents renting this and showing it to my brother and I could hear people laughing downstairs and ran downstairs again. If a movie is playing, I'm watching. And right. I just completely became obsessed. Might be, I don't know why I didn't curse like a trucker, but like <laughs> the most watched movies of my youth were Midnight Run, Jumpin' Jack, Flash, and Beverly Hills Cop, you know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was Yeah, fine. that's a colorful vocabulary you know? there. Yeah, it really is. I'm lucky I didn't get in trouble in school for talking about that. But uh, yeah, anyway, Midnight Run was one of my favorites. And I had a crush on Robert De Niro in grade school. So you can tell how popular I was (laughs) with the other girls in grade school. And uh, yeah, I just love this film. And they're all sitting around with their like tiger beats with new kids and Kirk yes. Cameron and Jen's like, yeah. yes, but, but have you seen 1900? Bobby is so hot in it and you can, you can kind of see his weenie for a minute. Um, I remember this, when this movie came out really well, actually, um, and uh, renting, renting it and sort of wearing out that VHS tape those first couple of days, because this really is, you know, I'm, I am older than you, but still was quite young when this movie came out. And it is kind of like everything you want out of a movie at that age, because it's, you know, there's car chases and there's shootouts, but it's, it's funny. And it's, it's a buddy comedy and God, who doesn't love a great 80s? buddy comedy um and you know it's charles groden who i only knew at that time from the great muppet caper so like you know what's not to love exactly um 
and and yeah, and Martin Bress, you know, his his big follow up to Beverly Hills Cop. I think what what I what I think is easy for contemporary viewers, for younger viewers who are approaching this movie for the first time to not realize is what a huge deal it was that this was De Niro doing a comedy like that. He, yeah. you know, that's so become just part of his thing now that that, you know, that was sort of. Uh, comedy revitalized his career back, you know, circa 99, 2000. But he only was the serious guy. He only was, you know, the the, the award-winning serious drama method actor. Um, and so to yeah. see him in a role like this that was so sort of loose and, and funny and shaggy um, and his comic timing is is also just like second to none in this. It's like It's like he's been doing it his whole career. It really is. Yeah, I know he was looking for something different right after Untouchables. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually wanted to make the movie big and like Penny Marshall was into right. it. But right. but the studio was, you know, no. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and Charles Grodin, as far as he goes in his memoir, he talked about like as much as he loved making the Neil Simon movies. I'm a huge fan of Seems Like Old Times, which I think like mm -hmm. five people have seen. Um, I'm one of but them. as much as he, oh yay but as much as he loved like heartbreak kid he thought that the duke was probably the best character he had played the most three-dimensional like he understood this man and he kept having to audition and do like chemistry reads and you know improvise because they even at one point wanted share uh to like add <laughs> yes. a little yeah oh, add a little sex appeal or some tension or something and george gallo uh told us like can you imagine de niro like i'm gonna stuff your head in a fucking toilet and it's share like that's <laughs> not gonna fly you know <laughs> yeah so it's it's an amazing movie it's sweet you need the stuff at home with his family it opens it up and yeah, yeah it opened the same day as die hard which is wow. bananas yeah wow yeah this also is is when you talk about Grodin this just reminded me and I had to pull it up one of my one of my favorite Roger Ebert reviews at least from this period he really got what was great about this movie he gave it three and a half out of four stars but I think yeah. about this line so often he says um De Niro is often said to be the best movie actor of his generation. Grodin has been in the movies just about as long, has appeared in more different titles, mm -hmm. and is of more or less the same generation, but has never received the recognition he deserves. Maybe because he often plays quiet, self-effacing everyman. In Midnight Run, where he is literally handcuffed to De Niro at times, he is every bit the master's equal, and in the crucial final scene, it is Grodin who finds the emotional truth that defines yes. their relationship. And every time I watch that movie, I think about that when it gets to that last scene, how right he is, how great Grodin is in that last scene, uh, and what a yes. tricky thing he has to do there to sort of like, to, to be the dramatic actor in that scene, I think is kind of amazing. It really is. Yeah, I think they have such good chemistry throughout. I even love how, I mean, Brest was using him to loosen up De Niro, like, of course, the most famous sequences on the train when you know he's doing the improvised uh, yes. thing where he's imitating De Niro and you know doing both sides of the conversation like shut the fuck yes. up and you know and you know there's a few chickens I would have taken a shot at the thing with farm animals <laughs> and you know it's just great but 
Also, you know, like the interplay between them, uh, there's a scene where De Niro's in the phone booth and he's like swearing to Joe Pantoliano, you know, yes. I'm going to kill him. And then he just like mimes like, no, to Charles <laughs> Cronin, who's watching like, no, I'm not going to kill you, which I love. Yeah. That's a great moment. Oh, okay. So, so uh, the, the name of the pod miniseries again, Jen, is Midnight Run Through. Yes. Uh, and you can get it in watch with jen or one heat minute productions pod feeds everywhere yeah so there you go give it a listen highly recommended uh very good year seal of approval all right jen in our random um undiscussed beforehand order then what will (laughs) be the second movie on your top five for 1988 oh that is tricky but i suppose we should go with something more dramatic so cinema paradiso presenting cinema paradiso the Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Film. Every night, the streets were empty because inside, lovers held hands, children laughed, and the routine of everyday life was forgotten. Because here at the Cinema Paradiso, someone is making their dreams come true. Which is... Giuseppe Tornatore's movie. I love it so much. I mean, what cinephile doesn't love this film, basically? Uh, But recently in October, I went back to LA to visit some friends. My friend Donald Logue and I went over to the Academy Museum where they had this documentary on Ennio Morricone called Ennio. It's going to open from Music Box Films at the beginning of February. But we got to see it with Giuseppe Tornatore introducing the Italian consulate. It was really cool. And Morricone's son was talking beforehand and telling stories about his dad. And uh, when he was talking, he mentioned, you know, seeing Cinema Paradiso so many times. I mean, I don't think it was Andrea, actually. I can't remember which Morricone's son, but this is one that Morricone did compose the score along with his son. Um, Mm -hmm. It's such a beautiful film. I'm like just a drop Italian, but if you ask me, it's my favorite part. So I'll pretend I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm 100 percent, like barely. And, uh, you know, like not at all, basically. But at by this point. But um, sure. I just I adore this film. It's kind of captures what I'm sure you and Michael remember, like growing up watching movies and having them shape you and wanting to be a part mm-hmm. of that world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yo, there's a part where the kid crosses himself as he's going into the projectionist room. Yeah, like I'm just sitting in my chair crying. Watching. <laughs> then, like yes. I know he's he's like he's not supposed to come back, and he's like worried he's the guy's gonna beat him up or something. Like I realize it wasn't all just sort of dedication to the drama of the room and like how much it meant to him. But that was all that I read in it until I had watched it like three or four more times and wiped the tears out of my eyes. This yeah. movie is uh, this the begin. Oh my god. I this was I had not actually seen it before. I had sort wow. of, you know, read about it plenty of times. Sure. And, and it's always one of those like, oh, I'm definitely going to watch. Obviously, I'm going to see Cinema Paradiso. And then it came up this time and it's just like I'm just weeping for how many how how how, how I could have watched it so many times by now. This movie <laughs> just I loved it so much. Thank you for bringing oh. this one. That makes me so happy. And you brought up Roger Ebert in the last review. And I just wanted to give a shout out that the theatrical cut Roger Ebert endorses is the way to go. It's the superior version. There is a longer (laughs) version and oh my God, it kind of does ruin the movie slightly. So stay away from the 173 minute or there's some 
plot uh, that develops in the, mo uh, the present period of the film that kind of takes away from the beauty and the nostalgia, I think. And uh, yeah, but I'm so glad you loved it. The site that I edit, Crooked Marquee, um, uh, Craig Lindsay just wrote a piece about um, about oh, Cinema yay. Parody. So for an ongoing series he has called Harvey's Hellhole, where he revisits <laughs> movies that Harvey Weinstein took the scissor hands to. Um, but this is the one that everybody sort of pinpoints as being the exception to the rule, the one where, yes. you know, the changes that he made that he insisted on did actually improve the picture because there are three versions the original italian theatrical cut was 155 minutes that was Ooh. the one that played at can that was not terribly well received that went out in the or original um italian release and and kind of did poorly the international cut then was uh 124 minutes and then in mm -hmm. 2002 you had that 173 minute director's Oof. cut um, yeah. which, uh, yeah, I will confess also, um, this was my first time watching this one. Again, it's one of those ones that oh, okay. I just, I, I felt, you know, you, you see it in so many montages of things. Oh, it's such a, yeah. it's such a standby of the sort of like, we love the movies montage that I, sure. I felt like I had seen it. And then when it came up on a previous show last season, I was like, I don't think I ever actually have watched that top to bottom. So uh, mm. on on Craig's advice, uh, and I and on Ebert's advice, I did watch the the uh, uh, the international cut, the hundred twenty four minute cut, and I found it yes, Perfect. quite moving, quite moving, quite charming, um, and there really is like a, a sort of specific vibe to the nineties uh, and two thousands Italian sort of village cinema. Um, yes. this, this sort of small village life and, you know, the sort of big personalities and things like that. And it's rooted in, you know, Italian neorealism. It's rooted in like, you know, Fellini films of his childhood and stuff like that. But it, mm -hmm. it, it is a very specific tone, um, that I think is, is really warm and, and lovely. And you do kind of leave this movie feeling like I could find this village. I would know where to hang out. I would know who to hang out with. Yeah. Um, and I would love to go see a movie at the Cinema Paradiso. The the thing with the priest and the bell, like Perfect. I was on the floor from the first time that came up. Yes. And I also love uh, something I didn't realize until film school, actually. Philippe Noiré, Philippe Noir I think, is the lead actor in the movie. He's mm -hmm. also in Il Postino, which is another great okay. film. And he's a French actor. And so he's dumb wow. in this movie and, and that wow. movie. So he's just giving a remarkable performance, but there's a different voice actor. Like, do I had no idea. Like, you know, wow. I saw this movie so many times. And when our film professor and the Italian professor at the college came in and was telling us about seeing this in Italy and his background and uh, his he's like don't watch the internet but of course I had to seek it out but he was right but um, <laughs> Nore you know he's like it's he doesn't speak Italian and he was telling us all about the actors if you're a little bit new to Tornatore another one that I think is underrated that came out a few years later and I believe Roger Ebert did love it as well is The Legend of 1900 which is oh yes kind of, yeah with tim roth yeah yeah i love that one. Oh, lovely yeah yeah beautiful movie all right moving along jen what then is the third movie on your top five for 1988 well michael was crying at this one so we need something funny so probably <laughs> bull durham right 
Annie Savoy knows talent when she sees it. You're a powerful young thing, Abby Calvin. But there's just no substitute for experience. I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Oh, my. Kevin Costner. <laughs> Susan Sarandon. <laughs> Bull Durham. Rated R. Starts Wednesday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for local listings. Which, I mean, is there a better sports comedy? It's one of the modern day, great contemporary screwball rom-coms, buddy coms. It's kind of, you don't even have to like baseball. You, you know, you can like any sport and apply it to it. I remember, like, I'm more of a tennis and a basketball person. I went to baseball games all the time, of course, but, um, I grew up in Minnesota and would go to Timberwolves games all the time, shared a birthday with Kevin Garnett. So we were huge Kevin Garnett fans and he was a cinephile and his favorite movie he would tell people was Bull Durham. And so he learned how to give interviews based on the <laughs> advice that Kevin Costner gives, you know, take it one, you know, God willing, help the ball club, all that shit. And if you listen to his early interviews, Kevin Garnett is like parroting Bull Durham so much. And I love that. Yeah. That is That awesome. is the movie fact of, that's a, that's a good one. That's a good, that's a good cut. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's wild because this is, this top five, you know, is two movies that I hadn't seen before. I'll mention the other one when it comes up. And then three that I've seen a gajillion times. Oh, and yeah. Bull Durham, I remember seeing, this is one of these ones where like I was eh, 12 or 13 at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad loved this movie, but he said, you don't get to see this one yet. But of <laughs> course, he brought the tape home. He went to work the next day. Of course, I yeah. watched it. Um, so, you know, that's... You little all, sneaky sons of bitches, both of you. Every time. Sneaky. Every time. Ooh, I have um, a story too, but I want to hear the rest of this one. I mean, there, that's really all there was to it. It's just like, it was such oh, okay. a little bit of piece of forbidden fruit. And it has, I yes. will tell you this, forever colored how I feel about Susan Sarandon. Like, I will always yeah. be in love with Susan Sarandon because, <laughs> like, when you're sneaking a movie as a 12-year-old and, like, that oh, yeah. is, like, that is, it's not just that she's sexy. Like, this is a specific grown-up sexuality. This is a grown woman. Uh, knows what she feel, wants. Knows, knows what ask. she wants. Yep. And will teach you things. And there's something yeah. very specifically appealing about that when you're like a horny 12 year old. Jen, what was your uh, <laughs> what was your story? Well, I babysat a lot growing up and uh, it was kind of funny. It was part of the deal where I would recommend a movie for people to see. And so mm -hmm. a couple of my neighbors uh, and I'm going to give them a shout out just in case was Jim and Linda Kapuzman. And they would rent just stacks. That's an of extremely for me. Minnesota last name, by it the way. Is, I, gotta, I have it? to say that. Yes. And they would rent stacks of movies for me. And they were always just like, you know, <laughs> again, they knew my parents were kind of liberal and liberal, like, yeah, watch Braveheart after the kids go to bed, that kind of thing. Sure. And uh, one night, Jim said, you know, here's the deal. If people ask me what my favorite movie is, I'll say, guess who's coming to dinner? Because it's a great movie. And I mean, mm -hmm. it is but it's really Bull Durham. So tonight, <laughs> watch Bull Durham and like you tell me, is it not better than guess who's coming to dinner? And you know what? I did yeah. and I love the yeah. movie and it's like they're apples and oranges, but 
I got to go with Bull Durham. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah. I think the dialogue is just right from the beginning of the film, you know, the church of baseball, there's that speech that Costner gives. I've talked to mm-hmm. a number of actors who are like, oh yeah, seduce a woman, learn that speech. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I think it, it did kind of inform and imprint on sexuality for Gen X, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I would agree with that. Ron Shelton, I think, you know, he's he was so good at this very specific thing, at the sports yes. comedy that has an authenticity to it, um, but that's also sharp and funny and that you don't have to love the sport to love the movie. Uh, I yeah. just uh, uh, recently rewatched White Men Can't Jump for the first time in, I don't know, 20 years. Great movie. Um, and it's great. It's still great. It's like mm-hmm. his... I, I I don't know kind of where he disappeared to why that why the he stopped having get getting funding I don't know why that happened yeah. I you know there were a couple of clunkers in there but you know who among us um but this stretch of time where you know he's doing this um uh white man can't Tin jump cup. Tin cup is so good um even yeah. some of the stuff he wrote like I love blue chips a lot oh yeah um, and Cobb, which we've mentioned on the show before, I think is wildly underrated because nobody wanted to see a movie about what a son of a bitch Ty Cobb is. But it's <laughs> very, very good. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Ron Shelton. Somebody let, let Ron Shelton make another movie. OK, uh, but also shout out to Jim from Minnesota, because has anybody else ever put Bull Durham and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in conversation? Yeah. Not that I've ever heard. Not that I've I don't heard. Shout so. out to yeah. Jim from Minnesota. Thank <laughs> yeah. you, Jim. All right, Jen, what then is your number four movie or your fourth movie? Excuse me. They're not ranked. What is the fourth movie on your list for 1988? We should probably go back to drama. So the unbearable lightness of being. Don't you ever spend the night at the woman's place? Come to me. I always try not to get too attached to a place, to objects or to people. Life's so light, like an outline we can't ever fill in or make any better. It's one of the sexiest movies ever made, for sure. I mm-hmm. love it. Um, you have Daniel Day-Lewis. I am a huge fan of the right stuff. Anyone who's followed me for any length of time knows I watch it like every 4th of July. I'm a huge uh, fan of Sam Shepard. It's, you know, I can quote the thing. I hadn't seen it. I'm going to be like Michael here. That's one that I didn't see until adulthood. And I'm like, God damn it. I could have been watching it a million times. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, after that, I had to go back and see what I had missed by Philip Kaufman. And I think I might have seen this in the 90s and didn't really remember it. But then it really sunk in. I watch it every single year. Uh, sometimes twice a year. It's I love good romantic sweeping epics, especially when the temperatures are at their lowest or their highest. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole uh, the love triangle at the heart of this, Juliet Binoche, Lena Olin. It's wonderful. So I'm going to guess, Jason, is this the one that you hadn't seen? 
right. this this again had been on the you know I've said this before one of the great things about doing this show is it gives you an excuse to watch the movies you just keep meaning to get around to yeah and um and I've meant to watch this one for years because I like Kaufman a lot I also came to write stuff late um but uh you know it's it's been saying I actually have this one on laserdisc I have the Criterion laserdisc oh this wow one, so I, I popped in all three sides and, and took that one in um and what was really I what was incredibly striking to me uh you know on a <clears throat> on a transparent level was the fact that i think daniel day lewis and juliette binoche have both aged so well they have both yes. aged like fine wine they're they they, mm-hmm. they are still very sexy people but holy crap they're so young and so hot in this like oh my god oh yeah um but but on a more serious but still on that general subject level you know i feel like this is a movie we've talked on the show before about the ridiculousness of the current uh and seemingly never-ending sex scene discourse and but this if i had to make a list of the movies that where the sex scenes are necessary to the plot which is so important to these idiots yeah this would be very near the top of that like there are things happening in the sex scenes of this movie that tell you Mm -hmm. so much more about these people about their relationships and about the evolution of this three-pronged dynamic than you could ever get in a dialogue scene or in a montage or even in longing looks like the way that character um and really and plot manifests itself in the sex scenes in this is like really sort of astonishing yeah especially the first one between julia binoche and daniel day lewis because she comes to the door and you are expecting it to play the other way like mm-hmm. you know we we open the movie and he's like take off your clothes you know and he's right, the ultimate right. seducer and yeah, like she just stick. walks in that's his thing yeah mm-hmm. and um i think he doesn't know what to make of this woman and then when he makes like a little pass she goes so yeah. into it that <laughs> i mean she is like tomas but like 10 times what he was yeah. probably expecting and her laughter and her giddiness i mean it's it's a riot basically but it's very sexy it's messy it's you know it's more real and this is one i think when you watch it again you're gonna pick up on just so much more like um the like the room number um you know the first book she's reading karen and the karen and then karen and the Mm -hmm. dog all the things that are like kind of seasoned throughout that come back um lena olin and her hat and i just i think it's magical yeah 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 no i mean and you're right that first scene (laughs) that 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 initial connection and chemistry in that first sex scene like the rest of the movie falls apart if it's not electric like oh yeah that has to motor the entirety you know of the two plus hours that follow it and it does like you're you 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 buy the 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 literal moving of heaven and earth that these two do for the rest of the movie because that because that chemistry is so intense and then of course the other thing that i that i was really struck by um was the the smoothness with which kaufman integrates the real archival footage um and creates the sort of matching stuff like there like the first time that that i saw daniel day lewis in one of those scenes like i it jolted me because they had matched the the look and the feel of that uh, newsreel footage so well it's really striking yeah the prog spring yes yeah absolutely 
I don't think I don't think I had ever really seen Daniel Day Lewis play a, a like character that was a, like a human being who someone would have sex with. Like if you want to fuck <laughs> Bill the Butcher, like God bless you. But like I don't know that that's that's not the reaction I had to the Ooh, character. You know, what about that there like, will be blood guy? My beautiful Andrette. Have you guys seen that one? Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. All right. I, I will also say Mike has not seen The Last of the Mohicans. So, like, that is also yeah, I think, a key. Yeah, right. I don't know a why key, I immediately went to him. Yeah, but yeah. A key oh DDL Fox uh, text. Yes, very much so. Yes. I haven't Last seen Mohicans. Mohicans. <gasps> oh, my God. You know, I'm looking but, at you, miss. Maybe the hottest thing ever. I mean, <laughs> we'll get, like, should I phone a friend? We'll get Blake in on it. We'll get Roxana Haddadi. <laughs> It'll be great. Yeah. Like I turned twelve in nineteen eighty eight. I knew Lena Olin was hot. Yeah, it, you know the whole the way that whole thing played off. Like I just I sort of when I'm you know looking at the movie before it starts and sort of you know just reading little descriptions and whatever. I'm sort of expecting him to be like the nerdy guy that has to be brought out of his shell. Oh and no! It was just really great to have that you know just completely yeah. cratered from the top from yeah. the very beginning. Yeah, great movie. Great movie. Great. All right, Jen. So then what is the fifth and final movie on your top five for 1988? It is A Fish Called Wanda. Archie Leach. Darling. Darling? Yes, dear? Is a lawyer <laughs> who's in love with a thief <sighs> who's hiding the key to a small fortune. To 20 million. From a killer called Otto. Are you totally deranged? Right to old chap. A crazy called Ken. And only a fish called Wanda knows where it is. Where are the diamonds? A fish called Wanda. Hello, Wanda. Rated R. Starts Friday. Check newspaper for a theater near you. Which yeah. is, again, right after Midnight Run, probably one of the comedies I've seen the most in my life. I remember the first time I watched it. I don't know that my parents were a huge fan of it the first time they'd seen it, but I rented it somehow. I laughed so hard. I remember getting yelled at in the next room, like, keep it down. I literally fell off the couch onto the ground watching Kevin Klein do the weird flip on the driveway for no reason. I mean, whatever. I I yeah. love Kevin Klein in this so much. Uh, anytime people are like, well, you don't get it. You know, I think we need to give Oscars for comedic performances. Another one of my favorite performances ever is Marissa Tomei and My Cousin Vinny a few years yes. later. She deserved it. Kevin Klein, just, I mean, it is like one of the all-time great performances, dramatic yeah. or comedic. And Jamie Lee Curtis is fabulous. Uh, the writing, the whole, like, just, it's ridiculous. I mean, even... It's in bad taste to like say there's a thing that happens where they're trying to kill this old lady and all the dogs <laughs> die, but it is the goddamn funniest <laughs> thing ever. I love this movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, in armpits, and, and you know, they make so many <laughs> not funny things funny in this movie. Like, that's, you know, that's oh, how God. you know it really is a masterwork. Yes. And Ken, I love to watch your ass when you walk away and just come on. <laughs> Or the, the line that, like, my friend Jordan Harper loves, you know, like, dad used to beat him up. Good. You know, that whole <laughs> interplay with that. Oh, God. It's fabulous. I, 
I mean, the, 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 what I, what is so inspired about the Kevin Klein performance is not that he's so stupid, but that he doesn't know it, that he thinks no. he's so he's, and, and I, if, if memory serves, J.B. Lee Curtis has a great speech about this, but it's like, it's that mixture yes. of outright abject stupidity and incredible blowhard bravado. Um, I know we're, we really do try not to connect everything to the previous president, but has there been a more Trumpian figure in <laughs> 80s cinema? Because John Glover in Gremlins 2 was 1990. So I'm going to say this is the most Trumpian character um, of 80s cinema. The other thing that I think is really important to, to underscore is that I think for a lot of people around our age, a little older, maybe a little younger, but sort of general Gen X, this was a lot of our introductions to Monty Python. Like, oh, yeah. You My know, first, Cleese, yep. Cleese and, and, and Palin hadn't really been in, in like huge stuff for a couple mm -hmm. of three, four years leading up to this. But this movie yeah. was, uh, I think, important to remember, a huge like summer hit. Like this was a yeah. big financial success, really sort of penetrated the culture. And people were suddenly into Cleese and Palin again. And I think a lot of folks loved this movie enough to sort of go to the video store and start renting Monty Python movies and it really sort of contributing to uh, to their popularity amongst that particular age range. Yes. And I'm so glad that you brought up, yes, Jamie Lee Curtis has one of the great speeches. We talked about the speeches in Bull Durham, but mm -hmm. they're equally wonderful here. You know, um, I've worn dresses with higher IQs and then like <laughs> apes don't read philosophy and like, yes, they do, Otto. They just don't understand it. And, you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, uh, great when she's quoting um you know, the central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. Those are all mistakes. I looked them up and oh, it's great. Yes. God. See, this is the danger. Because like I say, this is one of the ones I've seen a gazillion times. But after we get done recording, yeah. I really want to just watch Fish Called Wanda again. Um, yes. All right, Jen. Thank you so much for that excellent thank top you. five. Uh, now let's find out about the big doings of the movie business in the year 1988. Here's Mike with the Hollywood Minute. Hollywood freaks from the Hollywood scene. Rain Man was the big winner at both the Oscars, where it took trophies for Best Picture, Best Director Barry Levinson, Best Actor Dustin Hoffman, and Best Screenplay, and at the box office, coming in number one for the year with 172 million domestic and 354 million worldwide. Good movie. That is like, I mean, well, Jen, where do you, where do you land on Rain Man? What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's solid. I remember mm -hmm. really loving it as a kid, of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, and then in screenwriting class in film school, we actually studied the first act. Yeah. And as far as character um, development and setting everything up and what it seasons in, we only studied that first act. I mean. I'd seen it. Most of the people had seen it, of course. But then you wanted to go home and watch it. And just how uh, well it was done. I actually think, you know, it's fun to make fun of it. But it, it's a great movie. Yeah. it It's, I think, really well done. Uh, yeah. Really rewatchable. But, I mean, these numbers, these box office numbers just, like, blow my mind. Like, can you imagine 
now like a two-hander family drama basically making 354 million dollars worldwide like not in today money not even in 88 money Mm -hmm. um it it was just it was people would let you um you could you could make different types of movies that made a lot of money back then that's all i have to say there yeah their acting prizes went to jodie foster for the accused gina davis for the accidental tourist and one of the most richly deserved oscars in history kevin klein for a fish called wanda here here the year's other big commercial hits included who framed roger rabbit coming to america and crocodile dundee 2. (laughs) not quite making the top five was rambo 3 which was at that time the most expensive movie ever made a fucking Rambo mm-hmm. <laughs> with a production budget between 58 and 63 million dollars, which was a lot of money to spend on a movie once upon a time. Mm-hmm. It only grossed only 189 <laughs> yeah. million dollars worldwide, which was underwhelming enough to put the franchise on ice for 20 years. Anybody got anything smart to say about Rambo? I mean, Rambo 3 is garbage. Yeah. Rambo 3 is awesome. Most of the Rambo movies are garbage. Exploding but- arrows. <laughs> yes, I know, Mike. <laughs> Right. You were 12. You didn't see it in 1988. Yeah. That's I the didn't. problem. You I watched didn't. it ironically yes. when you were in your late 20s. Yes, if if then. I don't think I saw this movie till about four years ago when I was writing a piece about the Rambo movies. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah, when that box set came out from Lionsgate, yep. I think, is when I yep. saw all of them, too. Yep. Yeah, same. I was a Rocky person. Of course you yeah. hated it because you're, you're a reasonable grown adult. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't for you. Right. Much of Rambo's thunder that summer was stolen by an unexpected action hit starring a TV actor best known for doing comedy. What? How dare they? But <laughs> Die Hard would end up redefining the American action movie, spawning four sequels, two of which are pretty good, and countless ripoffs. Die Hard on a blank. Yes. Jen, what is your favorite Die Hard on a blank movie? Oh, I mean, Speed, obviously. There you and go. you got Jan de Bont, who's a part of that. Yeah, of the yeah, Die Hard. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I, I will confess, I've always had a real weakness for Under Siege Two: Dark Territory, because Ooh. I am an Eric Bogosian stan until the day I die. I love Bogosian. I just did an episode with Sean Burns, our friend, on Robert Altman underrated films, and he chose uh, Court Martial. K. Mutiny uh, Court Martial. Yeah. Yes, and I'm alone in my house at like eight in the morning. I had no idea who was in it. I yelled out, Bogosian! Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Eric! <laughs> yeah. There we go. Like, like it's a sports team. Yes. Yeah. Character actors. Yes. yes. I love it. That's how we should treat our movies, with the enthusiasm of football fans. That's For right. For sure. <laughs> This year, we said goodbye to friend of the show, Hal Ashby. R.I.P. Bus stop and picnic director, Josh Logan. Brief encounter star, Trevor Howard. The uber-distinguished John Houseman. The magnificently prolific, John Carradine. Clemenza himself, Richard S. Castellano. And the one and only, Divine. Mm. Ugh. R.I.P. Who we hope got her cha-cha heels for every Christmas since. Amen. <laughs> and finally, pour one out for the great English character actor Roy Kinnear, oh, yes. who played Veruca Salt's dad in Willy Wonka. Yep. He also appeared in just about every movie Richard Lester made from the Beatles' help forward. They were making The Return of the Musketeers together when Kinnear took a bad fall from a horse, causing severe injuries and a fatal heart attack. 
Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Lester, heartbroken, would never direct another narrative film. Mm-mm. Damn. Yeah. And on that note, yeah, that's your Hollywood Minute. All right, Jen Johans, you ready to do a lightning round? Okay. As usual, we go to John Willis's Screen World Film Annual for the year. I'm going to throw you as many titles as we can smash in in five minutes. And uh, let's see how we do here. We go Big Top Peewee. Pass. <laughs> Scrooged. I like it. Don't love. Willow. I remember it barely, but I think it was good. <laughs> the Land Before Time. Uh, that one was cute. I showed it to a lot of kids babysitting. <laughs> uh, we had a twofer of body swap movies in 88, Vice Versa, and 18 again. I don't think I saw 18 again, Vice Versa. I do barely remember, but... I mean, didn't leave an impression. From the files of Police Squad, The Naked Gun. Oh, that one's fun, for sure. From director Frank Oz, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Rubric. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> From director Robert Redford, The Milagro Beanfield War. I don't remember that one. Uh... Biloxi Blues. That was very good. Haven't seen it in decades, though. From director Jonathan Demme, the late, great Jonathan Demme, Married to the Mob. A lot of fun, for sure. Crossing Delancey. Excellent movie, and I'm not even a pickle person. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) From director John Sayles, Eight Men Out. I love that movie. One of my favorite John Sayles, for sure. It was I remember a big deal because it came out like not long after Bull Durham, and it was like, wow, I guess we're going to really get all kinds of baseball movies. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, from director John Carpenter, They Live. Did not see it. From director Robert Town, Tequila Sunrise. I love it. I mean, it is like cheesy as fuck. You have the sax, you have Mel Gibson, you have Raul Julia talking about his like prowess in bed. It's weird. There's pasta. There's like a rain scene. I I watch it every time it's anywhere. I'll watch it. Yeah. I feel like this was maximum mullet for Mel Gibson in Tequila Sunrise. Am I remembering that correctly? I think so. Yeah. 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 If not that, then the first lethal weapon. Uh, Pedro Almodovar's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Oh, a lot of fun. Yep. Tom Hanks had two big movies in 88, Big and Punchline. You know, Big is very good, but I don't love it as much as other people do. Punchline, Mm -hmm. I think people should check out more. Uh, Sally Field is very good. Yeah. She is. She is. And there's a lot of great comics in like sort of yes. before they were stars appearances in Punchline. Woody Allen's Another Woman came out in 88. Good, but barely remember it. Yeah. Harvey Firestein's Torch Song Trilogy. Another one I remember being really moved by in the 90s, but I don't remember it much. A uh, little something called Young Guns. Fun. I don't love that one. <laughs> I 
saw it for the first Sorry. time. I'm not kidding. Like two months ago, and boy, is it a lump of cheese. Um, yeah, like a the, year ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The original, the very first Child's Play, was released in 1988. You know, I think I saw it once in the 90s. Again, I don't really remember that one. Michael J. Fox in Bright Lights, Big City. I saw it, but couldn't tell you the first thing about that one. John Hughes, She's Having a Baby. Okay. Yeah, it it was pretty good. I don't know. His adulthood movies are kind of hit or miss. I preferred Great Outdoors, which was that year. Yeah. It was. You're right. Um, David Mamet's Things Change. Ooh, I love that movie. I'm a Mamet head. So, yeah, it's great. It is great. Very light and funny, which is it not is. always something you yes. could say about Mr. Mammoth's such work. A, yeah, such a Chicago movie. Yeah. Very much. Um, two from uh, the late Great River Phoenix, A Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon and Little Nikita. Also Running on Empty was oh. 88. Oh, shit. Well, yeah. Okay. Thank That's you. the one I want to go with because I barely remember the other ones. Running on Empty, Fair. everyone go see that. I love it. And finally, starring the aforementioned Eric Bogosian, Talk Radio was released in 1988. I mean, it's Oliver Stone. It's a classic. It's Bogosian. Yes. Bogosian! Yeah! <laughs> Jason Bailey gonna shit on Young Guns. It's a good thing we weren't watching movies together in 88 because we would not uh -oh. have been friends. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see the most 1988 thing imaginable... Rewatch the opening credits of Young Guns, which really looks like <laughs> the beginning of like a bad Saturday night ABC primetime Western show. If I could, if if some soul has been good enough to isolate the opening credits on YouTube, I will embed those in the show notes as well. All right, Jen, I'm not gonna watch it because that's like rewatching Gleaming the Cube. Like, don't do it to yourself. <laughs> Just remember the movie as you remember the movie. Allow yourself that. You know, fair enough. Go watch something made for grownups. Fair enough, Jen. Excellent work on the uh, on the lightning round there. Uh, where can people find you on social media and on the world wide web? Can find me at Film Intuition on social media and Letterbox. So Twitter, I still call it Twitter, uh, Instagram, and yes, Letterbox and FilmIntuition.com. I have a Patreon Patreon at Film Intuition, and Watch with Jen is everywhere you get your podcasts. Highly recommended. Good show. Good guests. Good fun. I am Fun City Thank Cinema you. on Instagram. Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterboxd, where you can find under my list the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can people find you? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. And of course, if you like the show and think other people might like it too, please leave us a rating and or a review on your podcatcher of choice. There are so damn many movie podcasts out there, so your recommendations really do help us out. Mike, before we go, what is your parting recommendation for the year 1988? My parting, re parting recommendation for 1988 has the rare distinction of being both a sequel and a documentary. <laughs> Not, most documentaries don't get sequels, right? It's true. The Decline true. of Western Civilization, oh. Civilization Part 2, The Metal yeah. Years, yes. came out in 88. You could put any scene from... <laughs> 
uh, from Spinal Tap. Just chop it out, drop it in the middle of this movie. Nobody, it wouldn't miss a beat. Yeah, nobody would even notice. You know, it's but it's it's an amazing movie directed by Penelope Spheris, right? Yeah. Is that right? So the the first part was the Punk Years, which was made in in eighty one, and is so much more sort of. God, it's not. The earnestness is more respectable. I don't mm-hmm. know how else to mm-hmm. say it. It's not more earnest because these guys take themselves very, very, very seriously. seriously. <laughs> it's just, they're completely ridiculous. Yes. Uh, it is like, it's hard to believe that there was, that it's real. Yeah. Watching it now. You know, yeah. I've seen, I've watched it very recently and it's hard to believe that there was ever a time where like this was sort of the picture of masculinity in a way, or at least one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was taken very seriously in culture. And thankfully I was, like I said, like 11, 12. So my mom was still picking most of or She was at least able to veto my clothes. So there's no pictures of me like <laughs> with the giant hair. Otherwise, bro, like I loved poison so much. Maybe you're right. Maybe young guns does suck. Cause now <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I liked poison a lot at that same age. So you might be right about these. Movies. Anyway, it's a great movie. It, whether you have any connection to the culture or not, I can't believe I just said that, but it's true. Yeah. Uh, it, it made me think a lot about myself, but it's yeah. a really good movie. It's like, these guys are just talking about all the, all the chicks and you know, all the rock and roll and all the vodka and all this kind of stuff. And then like 30 minutes into the movie, she's like, so are you worried about AIDS? And all of a sudden, you just see them sort of like, what yeah. do you do about birth control? Yeah. Oh, I don't really worry about that. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> clearly, she just reminded you you should. It's yeah. just like the fact that this movie was made by somebody who's, you know, so smart and and not necessarily sort of a part of the culture, but can can look at it from outside and like sort of ask the obvious questions. Yeah. Um, that maybe these guys have never asked themselves before. It's just a remarkable document. I love that movie so much. I can watch it anytime. Uh, yeah. So, Decline of Western Civilization, The Metal Years. There's a third one uh, that is also very good. Yep. You know, so obviously she knows what she's doing. How about you? Uh, so, I am going to go with um, Clean and Sober, which I, I, oh, I have yeah. talked about on this show before, but I don't remember doing so. Uh, this was the movie that Michael Keaton did right before Batman. Um, yeah. It was, it was his first crack at a sort of serious uh, mm-hmm. drama on a, on a grand scale. It was also, you know, we talk about Bruce Willis doing Die Hard this year. This was uh, Moonlighting's creator, Glenn Gordon Karen sort of cashing in that blank check of that show. It's a really earnest um, rehab drama, which has sort of become a cliche in the years since, but it wasn't at the time. Yeah. Michael Keaton is a sort of hotshot stockbroker who's like addicted to blow and whose life is in the toilet, who mm-hmm. goes into a 30 day anonymous rehab program, not because he wants to clean himself up, but to get, uh, get out of get off the police's radar because a girl died in his bed. Um, but as he goes in and he tries to sort of bullshit his way through rehab, the problem is that his rehab counselor is Morgan Freeman. And this was the first thing I ever saw Morgan Freeman in. I saw this movie way before I should have because my mom (laughs) was a recovering alcoholic and Uh. addict and she wanted to see it and wanted me to see it with her. Um, It's just a miraculous movie. It is uh, so authentic and so lived in. He is incredibly genuine. It's a great case of 
uh, a performer taking on a role that allows him to sort of be his persona and then turn it inside out. Uh, so he's doing a lot of the sort of typical 80s fast-talking, fast-thinking Michael Keaton stuff at the beginning, but then you see that sort of strip away as a level of artifice and bullshit. Morgan Freeman is incredible in it, and it's not a performance like I've seen him do again. Um, and Kathy Baker is sort of the third piece of that, who was also in Street Smart with Morgan Freeman the year before, although that was a movie I did not see until much later. Um it's some of the best acting Michael Keaton's ever done. There's a great M.M. at Walsh performance in it. They use uh, people speaking at AA meetings as sort of like the the, the chapter markers throughout, which mm-hmm. is a really ingenious um, organizational principle. It's a movie that has sort of disappeared into the sands of time, but it's really worth seeking out if you like Michael Keaton, if you like Morgan Freeman, or if you just... Are, are interested in this world uh, which from what I was told at the time it captures and conveys really eloquently uh, great double bill just uh, watch yeah. my movie first there then you go. go watch clean and sober <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you'll, and uh, you'll make sense of the 80s there we go that's where the our... heavy metal guys ended up yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> either there or in the ground anyway um, thank you again on Jen. that note Yes. We've been killing it with the buttons in this episode, boy. Yes, we have. (laughs) No, thank you for having me. Thank you again for coming on, Jen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very 